the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. In November of 2020, the Democrats were up to no good. They were planning to pull off the greatest scheme of election fraud never before seen. They didn't think we would catch them, but we did. Find out what they did and how they did it in the new documentary film called 2000 Mules, directed and narrated by renowned filmmaker Dinesh D'Souza and executive produced by Salem Media Group, with research from truthevote.org. 2,000 Mules tells the story of the ones who tried to hijack a presidential election. You'll see the actual video surveillance tapes. You'll see how we tracked their cell phones to box after box as they got paid to carry out this illegal scheme. Watch the movie and decide for yourself. Attend a limited release premiere of 2,000 Mules on May 2nd or May 4th. Check your local listings and get your tickets today at 2000mules.com. That's the number 2000mules.com. Welcome to today's episode of The Situation Report. Very glad to have you joining us, of course, as always. This is the show where we do our very best to give you the information and perspectives you need to navigate an ever-changing culture. My name is Jeremy Stalnecker. I am your host today. And uh, again, thankful that you would join us in this conversation. We talk about an ever-changing culture. I've mentioned this probably every episode. You're probably tired of hearing it, but... uh, Culture is always changing. It's constantly changing. There are things happening all of the time, and uh, many of us are aware. And if you're not, you need to be aware of what has happened recently in Florida with the Florida Parental Rights in Education Bill. I needed to read that because there is a moniker that has been attached to it that's just false and misleading. Uh, many have been calling this the Don't Say Gay Bill. That's not what it is. It is the Florida Parental Rights and Education Bill, which really seeks to give parents the right <laughs> to navigate their children's education and to have very difficult, age-appropriate conversations with their kids. What a novel idea that parents would be responsible for their children. And many people are not happy about this, but this is something that uh, this bill recently did pass. And for so many of us, uh, I think there is a friction between what we're being told that things like this are, the compassion argument that's made about bills like this and, and issues like this, and what is actually true, what is actually happening, and why uh, it's important for us to understand these things and recognize these things. If you have heard about this, uh, and I hope that you have, I, I'm not sure what it is you've heard or where you've heard it from, but we have a guest on today who has spent a lot of time talking about this, navigating this, who understands this issue, and I'm thankful that she would come on and spend a few minutes with us just to break this down. Uh, this issue is so important, it's so critical, It's not just important in Florida, if you live in Florida. This is an important issue to everyone, everywhere. If you have kids, this is important. If you don't have kids, it's still important because it reflects so much of where culture is and where the media and large corporations, in large part, are trying to lead the culture. And so we need to understand this. We need to know how to respond to it. And again, I'm very grateful for our guest today, Amber Athey.
Amber is the Washington editor at The Spectre, a senior Blankley fellow. And uh, Amber, you're going to have to tell us what a senior Blankley fellow is. Uh, but I uh, really appreciate you taking some time to come on and talk about really a very, very important issue. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. Can we start with, and uh, I want to get into this, we're going to talk about the Florida Parental Rights and Education Bill. Um, but before we do, I, I would like to hear a little bit of your background, uh, how you got into this world of uh, conservative media and, and reporting on things like this. Certainly. So I actually became a journalist kind of on accident. I was at Georgetown University for undergrad, was really always interested in politics, but viewed it more as a hobby. Uh, but I was man, constantly under attack on campus by yeah. radical left-wing students who just tried to silence me in any way that they could. So by the time graduation rolled around, I decided I needed to work in politics in some way, shape, or form, but wasn't exactly sure what that would look like. So started throwing out applications to all different types of you know, think tanks, nonprofits, media companies, and pretty much all of my job offers were from places that do journalism. And I figured, hey, why not? I'll give this a shot. Uh, started out at Campus Reform, did that for about 10 months and just really fell in love with the idea of reporting and the challenge of it, of being first to a story. And also the fact that it was so important for media to represent voices that were traditionally not heard because of the stranglehold that corporate outlets have on the media right now. So that was really how I got involved. And I've been doing that for about six years now across various outlets and I've been really enjoying it. What uh, what was it that kind of gave you a conservative outlook? Was that a, a you were raised conservative? You had a moment where you went, "This is crazy. I need to look at the world different." Uh, how did how did kind of your philosophy form? My parents were, I guess, conservative in terms of their cultural values, but I never really knew what their politics were until I got older. Mm. But we were raised, you know, on principles of hard work and personal responsibility and not relying on other people to give us a handout. We were certainly taught that life isn't fair and that we needed to be fighting tooth and nail for everything that we got. And my dad is a blue collar laborer for his entire life. So, you know, we definitely weren't raised with a silver spoon and had to do the classic old bootstraps kind of trope. Um, But as as I got older and started to understand the issues more, that really cemented the fact that I was a conservative and I used to argue with my teachers in high school and go home and complain (laughs) to my parents about all of the bias in class and things like that. So, you know, I I think I was dispositioned uh, in a conservative way, but I I definitely grew stronger in those beliefs as I went out into the world and started to see how everything worked in practice. Yeah. Uh, You you talked about some of, I don't know if the word persecution is right, but dealing with people who disagreed with you at Georgetown and other times in your life. Um, it, it seems to me that there are younger people like yourself who have strong conservative opinions who are taking advantage of technology and really have been able to get out on the front lines of media and communication in ways that in, in generations past is not possible. Do you see that? Have you experienced that? And, and are you encouraged uh, or discouraged by young people who are coming along and saying, I need to be a part of what's happening? I'm so encouraged. And I really cannot speak strongly enough about how important the internet has been for young people yeah. being able to share conservative beliefs, because we've really been able to disrupt that traditional media structure by offering people alternative platforms and alternative ideas across social media and other platforms. And that's why social media companies are trying so hard to restrict free speech. 
Uh, I mean, we saw recently with the University of Chicago kids who were at that disinformation conference and basically blew up the entire narrative with just two really well-placed questions to Ann Applebaum and Brian Stelter. Uh, We wouldn't have seen that, you know, not long ago because those videos would have never been allowed to air to the general public. So I think that's a really great uh, and and should should be cause for optimism, I think, for the future of media, because people are able to tune out of those corporate elitist outlets and look for alternatives. We uh, we just found out today uh, that or I just found out today that CNN Plus is now off the air. They took. They really made a good run of it. I think it lasted like two weeks. So that was really good. Um, but but part of what you're referencing there, that conversation at that conference, uh, do you think that this disruptive technology has had an impact? And we haven't seen it. I mean, we've talked about this for a long time. Like CNN's not going to make it. There's all these other things happening. Is this the beginning of us seeing the impact of some of these, you know, people who are out there using technology, using social media to make a change. I think it absolutely is. Look, CNN has only had a platform for as long as it has because there is such a high barrier of entry for cable news. I mean, they recently took One America News off of some cable packages. I know Newsmax has been really fighting tooth and nail to try to get in there as well. And it's really, really difficult. But if you're going into the streaming game or the online, uh, you know, news game, then you have a much lower lower barrier of entry. And so you can offer things to people without having to climb through these hoops that the establishment has really put in place to keep competition out. And CNN learned that the hard way by trying to launch CNN Plus without having the audience for it. They cannot compete in a free market. And I think most of the corporate media would find that to be true as well. Mike Lindell has a passion to help everyone get the best sleep of their lives. He created the Giza Dream bed sheets. They look and feel great, which means an even better night's sleep for you and me. Mike found the world's best cotton called Giza. Mike's latest incredible deal is the sale of the year. Sale of the year. That means it's not going to happen again. This is the sale of the year. What is it? For a limited time, you will receive 60% off the Giza Dream Sheets that comes with a 60-day money-back guarantee and a 10-year warranty. You will receive a set for as low as $39.99. For a limited time, with any purchase, you will receive Mike's soft cover book free when you use promo code SITREP. Go to MyPillow.com and click on the radio listener square and use promo code SITREP. Along with this offer, you will also get deep discounts on all MyPillow products, including the MyPillow mattress topper, MyPillow towel sets, and so much more. For those of you that would rather use the phone, and some of you are out there, you know who you are, call 1-800-870-0283, use the promo code SITREP, or MyPillow.com and use the promo code SITREP. Uh, We're getting way off topic, but I'm going to keep asking because you have such a great perspective on this. Do you think that this will have an impact on other networks like MSNBC, uh, you know, other networks that would would try to reach for something like that, where they'll look at CNN and go, we can't do that, maybe even pulling back to a more moderate position, or will they just dig their heels in and keep doing what they're doing? Yeah, NBC is a little bit different because I think one of the main differences between cable networks like MSNBC and CNN is that MSNBC is perhaps a little bit more honest about the perspective that they're coming from. And the Mm, biggest reason that people hate CNN is because they don't like being lied to. And CNN parades objective journalism. And some of these networks, too, like NBC, have the benefit of having uh, really large corporations with a variety of media content. So 
Um, NBC, for example, owns Peacock, which has a bunch of original programming and more entertainment-focused content, whereas CNN is pretty much yeah. all news. So NBC has a little bit of a buffer there where they can still kind of afford to compete by creating their own entertainment programming. But if they were to try to launch, you know, NBC News Plus or MSNBC Plus, I don't think that yeah. would end very well for them. Yeah. Yeah, hopefully this will be a, uh, a good warning shot across the bow for a lot of these companies. I, uh, I think in a lot of areas right now, we'll talk about Disney hopefully in a minute, but some of these large corporations that there's been just unexpected pushback I hope will serve as an example to other smaller companies that maybe they should just do their job and not try to change culture. Um, which brings us to our topic, and, and this is something you've been talking about, and uh, I, I believe, I think most people who are paying attention believe that what's happening in Florida and has happened in Florida will have a ripple effect throughout the rest of our nation. We should learn some lessons. Um, the Florida Parental Rights in Education Bill, it has been wrongly called, and I hate the name, don't say gay bill. It's it's stupid, it's disingenuous, it's fake. Um, but that's what people are, are kind of framing it, or that's how they're framing it. Can you give us an, uh, an overview of that bill and uh, an overview of what has happened, and a lot has happened since you know this even came up? But uh, let's start there. Just give us an overview of where we are with that. Yeah, the Parental Rights and Education Bill is actually pretty simple. For people who haven't read it, it's pretty short. I think it's maybe seven pages long. So it's not like trying to read the Affordable Care Act where you're spending an entire (laughs) week uh, and passing it before you know what's in it. But uh, this bill, it, it really just gives rights back to the parents. It basically says that if a child in school is demonstrating some kind of uh, mental health challenge or change in their mental status, then the parents need to be informed about that. And so that can refer to things like if the child thinks they're a different gender or if they're expressing yeah. suicidal tendencies or anything like that. I mean, that should be a really basic part of being in school, that parents need to be kept abreast of changes to their child's mental state. And uh, there were a lot of claims when this bill first dropped and the left-wing activists started using the Don't Say Gay moniker that it would prevent teachers from talking about their spouse in class or from other children actually talking about their parents if their parents happen to be gay or something like that. And really what it does in terms of the education of gender identity and sexual identity aspects is that Children in grades kindergarten through three cannot be taught about developmentally inappropriate <laughs> sexual and gender uh, lessons, which I think most what an, normal what people an would agree. With, right? I think yeah, most people crazy. would agree that that's a, a pretty normal thing that we should be absolutely doing to protect our kids from lessons that are inappropriate. And then there was another claim from the left that the bill would. Uh, potentially actually harm children who identify as a different gender or a non-heterosexual sexuality because it would force teachers to tell parents who are potentially abusive about the fact that their kids are gay, for example. And the bill actually has a specific carve out for situations where the parents could be reasonably believed to be abusing the child in which case the, ch- the teachers are allowed to sort of shield them and protect them from abusive parents. So that concern was unfounded as well. So when you get down to the nitty gritty of it, this is sort of like when the Georgia election integrity bill was being pushed and people lied and said that you couldn't hand out water in line to people who are right. waiting to vote. Right. It's the same exact misinformation that's happening here because they don't like the fact that the leftist 
uh, indoctrination is being challenged by Ron DeSantis and Republicans in Florida. Uh, some teachers apparently uh, walked out of their jobs because of this, and there is a lot of posturing, of course, that's happening on the other side of this. And one of the questions that I have had as a parent is, why is this even a conversation that we're having? Uh, why is this so important to those that it's important to? Those, we'll say on the left, I don't know that, that's a pretty broad generalization. There are a lot of people that are politically left that would also agree with us on this. But why, why is this such an important issue right now that there are people who say, I'm going to walk out um, of my job, uh, corporations that are staging protests and really working to get this changed? Why, why is this? Why is this the issue that people are willing to die on right now? To me, this is really the culmination of a couple of trends. One trend is that leftists have been trying to indoctrinate kids for a really long time, but it traditionally only happened at the university level. And then conservatives mm. started creating all of these organizations and media outlets dedicated to exposing what was going on on college campuses. So it had to get a little bit more sinister. They had to go to younger ages to try to indoctrinate the kids. And that turned out to be more effective anyway, because kids, when they're at that age, are obviously more vulnerable to indoctrination sure, efforts, sure. and they can kind of pit them against their parents um, more easily. So we started seeing younger and younger ages at which these kids were being exposed to really radical ideas. And then the other part of it is that, um, and I'm talking about this in a book that I'm currently working on that will be out actually next winter, which is woke millennials, when they were in college, really tried to shutter uh, conservative thought. They believed in the idea of safe spaces and trigger warnings and just trying to silence anyone that disagreed with them. We used to call them snowflakes, and a lot of people right. opined that these people would enter the real world and they'd get hit with the hard dose of reality and they would have to change their ways. But instead what happened is they actually ended up infiltrating a lot of our major key cultural institutions, including corporations, uh, the schools, the media, and they use those same campus mob tactics to really change the parameters of debate and to strong arm uh, corporate executives, uh, campus administrators, teachers that don't agree with them, and the uh, editors at media outlets into going along with their woke ideas. And when you look at the videos of the teachers who are walking out, you do generally see teachers that are between the ages of maybe 25 and 45. Mm -hmm. And yeah. they, you know, just kind of look like your average campus activist. And it's because when they graduated from school, they were never told that what they were doing was inappropriate or wrong. And they still believe that they can annoy people and shame people into complying <laughs> with their demands. Yeah. Yeah, it's been fascinating to watch. And, and one of the things that is, I think, scary, I guess, is the complete and abject rejection of fact. There is a long history of documented evidence, fact, um, research that's been done to demonstrate how harmful this is to children. I mean, just psychologically harmful, emotionally harmful um, but physically harmful. We could talk about what it is exactly that they're advocating. The number of children who transition, which again, I don't like that word either because you're not transitioning, but are going through this process as children that become adults and try to detransition, try to go back. It's extremely harmful. And 
I understand that there are activists who hate, I guess, anything that requires uh, moral thought or action. But um, what, what's harder for me to understand are people on the sidelines who are rejecting fact. Is the philosophy, the, uh, the political philosophy, is it so ingrained that people are willing to just look past that? Or are we being lied to that this is a very small group of people that are making a whole lot of noise and they don't really represent uh, many other people behind them? Well, I do think that it tends to be a really small, you know, vocal minority. That was the case on college campuses as well, where they do reject facts to suit their ideology, because for them, there's, there's nothing greater than the ideological purity uh, and the, the air of compassion. They, they try to couch these various Right. Uh, ideas right. under the tent of compassion, no matter how wrong that may be. But they're so good at manipulating people with that uh, with that allegation that if you don't agree with them, you're not compassionate or you're evil, you're not a good person, that a lot of people who would otherwise maybe either stay out of the fight or at the very least, you know, lean the other direction are mm. afraid. And so they they stay silent or they give in and they prop up these really horrible individuals that are really damaging our kids. Um, and I really don't think we can speak enough about how damaging this is physically. You sort of got into it there, but there is evidence that when young kids get on the puberty blockers followed by the hormone therapy, Right. They can be chemically castrated. They can become infertile. That's irreversible. They have uh, right. brittle bones, osteoporosis, a higher risk of brain damage. And that is something that will last for their entire life. You can't just go back once you've made that right. decision. And they are not of the age where they can decide that they should not be able to have kids in the future. It's really horrific what they're doing. Yeah, it's terrible. Um I'll ask about corporations in just a minute because, again, I think that's a really interesting part of this story. But what's happening in Florida is something that is going to have a ripple effect throughout the rest of the nation. There will be an impact on the rest of the country. Uh, what what will those impacts be? And I guess, how should various states that want to stop it or prevent that, what should they be doing right now to get a hold of the narrative? I think this is going to have a positive ripple effect because if we're being honest with ourselves, this ideology has been taught to our children behind closed doors for probably longer than mm. we even realized. And it was only when the pandemic started and kids were on Zoom classes that parents realized right. their kids were being taught critical race theory, for example. Right. Uh, and it's really the same with the gender ideology where this was was kind of going on and creeping in and the teachers got so bold because parents just really had no idea. And this Florida bill has really exposed so much uh, warped ideology in our schools mm. that I think other states are going to start paying attention. And this banning of teaching developmentally inappropriate topics from kindergarten to third grade is a really great start for any legislator that I think is trying to tackle this issue. Um, and the Virginia parents movement was such a huge part of fighting back against right. as well. It's not right. enough to just legislate. You have to go to your school board meetings. You have to look at this on a local level as well, because that is going to end up being a more effective solution, a quicker solution. 
to making sure that your kids are taken care of in their schools. Vote out the, the school board members who are allowing this to happen. Uh, go and talk to your principals about teachers who are teaching this in your classrooms. That really has to start at a, at a much lower level than just statewide. Does exposing things like this, and, and I agree, I think bringing you know, these things that are done in the dark out into the light, it's a painful process, but it's a very good process. I think it's very helpful. Parents getting involved in their school boards and all, all of these things that we're seeing happen that you just mentioned. Is, is this having an impact on those woke millennials you just mentioned, the, the, the young people who are either in the universities or coming out of the universities, when they're seeing the damage and the rhetoric and, and just having some of this exposed, is this going to help that generation or alienate them from conservative thoughts and you know, conservative positions? Honestly, I think if they're teaching kids this kind of stuff, it's probably too late for them. I don't know that they would ever become conservative. Um, but I will. But those that yeah. are those that are on the outside, though, who are watching it happen, who may may share an ideology, but they're not they're not activists. Mm-hmm. Um, is that going to help them? I guess that's the group I'm I'm more referring to. I think it's actually helping them come to our side. I've seen a lot of leftists who are saying, you know, this isn't really political. Like when they read the actual text of the parental rights yeah. education bill, yeah. they support it. Uh, and I'm referring to American voters support it on a level of two to one. Wow. I mean, it's not even wow. close. And even Democrats, 55% of Democrats, when they read the text of the yeah. bill, support that idea. So yeah. it's all a matter of educating people. And one thing, I want to give a lot of credit to the right on this particular issue, because I think a lot of times we either tend to argue on the left terms or we're constantly playing defense. In this case, this was an offensive move. We said, hey, this is happening in schools. And you're bad people, and we are going to put a stop (laughs) to this. And the left was caught on defense saying, trying to defend why they were essentially grooming kids in the classroom. And that is so rare for us to win that type of messaging battle. And I think this can be a blueprint for other issues as well. Yeah, yeah, that's great. The next issue connected to this, and uh, again, I'm interested in what happens in Florida, but I don't live in Florida. (laughs) I'm interested in how this impacts the rest of us. Corporations, and in particular in Florida, the Disney Corporation, who has come out so strong against this bill, saying things like, we're going to have it overturned, we're going to invest money and resources in that. Um, And it seems like that was a response because of their employees saying, Disney execs, we need to do this. Why are companies like that? Why would Disney, for instance, who, you know, for generations uh, or a generation has stood for children, children's rights, and t- caring for kids. Why have they gotten involved in this, and, and why do they not care, apparently, about their bottom line when it comes to defending issues like this? I think there's two reasons, and the first you hit on, which is that their employees were protesting, and corporations are really self-interested, not just financially, but they really like to avoid negative headlines, and if they have an internal revolt, so to speak, from employees, then that they think looks really bad in the media. Mm. And so they try to avoid things like that. But the second thing that I think a lot of people Mm. don't realize is that in terms of investment into corporations now, there's actually not just a financial standard, but there's almost a social credit score. And this is factored into um, when investment banks are choosing whether or not to give money to a corporation or a startup or a small business. They are actually looking at the politics of the organization and factoring that into whether or not it's a sound investment. Um, This is happening all over the country. 
um, in boardrooms and people don't even know that it's happening, but they basically consider whether or not a company is progressive enough as a, a means of determining whether or not they're making a good investment. Mm. And so it's not just a financial uh, calculation anymore. Conservatives often say, well, if you just boycott them, then they'll lose a lot of money and their stock will go down and they'll learn that, you know, go woke, go broke. Right. It's not that simple anymore because there is this added calculation that we have to contend with. And there's a couple of yeah. states, I believe Iowa is one of them that is actually looking at this and trying to root it out and potentially pass legislation to ban uh, investment companies from looking at the politics of a corporation as a means of investment. Um, so I hope that other states start looking into this as well, because it's much more widespread. It's been going on for several years now and only recently have people started to um, become aware of, of this trend. Disney has lost uh, something like 3 million subscribers to Disney+. Plus. Um, their stock, it hasn't bottomed out. But uh, as someone who just recently, like last week, lost a lot of money on Disney stock, <laughs> Disney stock um, it's taken a turn. The market is definitely responding to this political position that they've taken. Um, it's a social position. I think it's a moral position. Um, so that's one thing, losing a lot of money. Uh, I, I, I've read that many people who have annual passes have canceled those. So there is a financial impact. We then look yeah. at Netflix, who kind of went down this road a little bit themselves with some of the content that they produced. And now, you know, they're, they're losing hundreds of thousands of subscribers. So there is a real impact. Um, I'm not confident that those companies will respond to that because of everything that you just outlined. The, the social position or positioning is more important to them, perhaps, than their financial bottom line. But will this serve as a warning to other companies, smaller companies that don't have the financial resources to, to deal with something like this? So I guess my question is, is there a net benefit to the boycotts, to the financial impact for these large companies, even if they don't change? Yeah, I do think there is. And and look, the financial aspect is still definitely part of it. And even big companies at some point will have to say, have we gone too far? Right. I think what conservatives need to do to fight back against this, one is if you're an employee at one of those companies, maybe you need to start organizing the way that the left-wing employees do, because mm. it's obviously very effective. And the second thing is that we need to make it more painful for companies to give in to woke politics than to uh, yeah. than for the than the protests themselves. So when left wing agitators protest these companies, they say, "Oh, this is too painful. We're going to give in." Well, the reaction to that from conservatives should be even more damaging to the company than that initial protest. Otherwise, they're going to continue to give in, and then of course that further incentivizes the behavior from the woke left because they've yeah. learned that they can notch these victories if they just protest hard enough. So I think conservatives need to kind of get over the whole, well, we're principled. We don't do things sure. like that. We vote sure. with our, our wallet. Um, it's just not really good enough anymore when you have pretty much the entire corporate space working against you and your values. Yeah, that's good. Um, when you look at just Americans generally, you know, people working jobs, doing whatever it is they do, going about their business, uh, what should everyday Americans, from your perspective, as you've looked at this, you've reported on this, you've thought about this, and, and a lot of other cultural issues that you're, you know, involved in, in uh, kind of breaking down. What should average Americans do to 
Um, I would say, number one, stop the slide <laughs> into uh, tyranny and you know socialism and beyond the moral decay. What should they do to stop the slide and then start to turn that around um, in communities locally? Yeah, I think that's a great question because we can lobby all we want on the national scale and boycott yeah. corporations, but that's only part of the solution. The pandemic really only accelerated a really horrible trend in American society, which was taking power away from communities. Um, they closed churches, they shut down yeah. small businesses, they yeah. forced people to get vaccinated to work their job. And we have to start rebuilding those local institutions like the church, like community centers, like after school programs, extracurricular activities for kids, even just going to the park on a regular basis and meeting your neighbors and creating mm. these small communities is so important for fighting back against this uh, nationwide elite bureaucracy that's really created by corporations, the government, Hollywood, big tech, and all of them, and the media all working in tandem to try to promote their own values. Um, we have to step back from that and return to how it was in, in the 80s, the 90s, the early 2000s, where our politics really were local and we didn't allow these outside factors to influence our communities so much. Yeah, we've, I think, in large part allowed, allowed media to tell us what to think. And so even though we live in local communities, it really is a, a corporate or national model that's communicating to us. And we, we've got to get away from that. Do you see the um, development of other social media platforms as a positive in that direction? Um, or, you know, is there a downside? I'm, I'm very conflicted on that. I, I think the best advice you just gave there was go to the park and meet your neighbors. Um, maybe staying out of, off of all social media would be helpful, but um, is that a positive thing? I, I think we can ghettoize ourselves, if that's a word, into, you know, kind of putting ourselves around other people that think just like us. I'm not sure that's always helpful. Um, but are these other platforms helpful? That was a really long an uh, question, but you get it. <laughs> yeah, no, it makes sense. Um... I, I generally think that an increase in platforms is probably good, although I agree that I wish fewer people were on social media, and I right. really recognize I'm a hypocrite. Uh, my excuse <laughs> is that I use it for work, but sure, if you're sure. using it, if you're going on Twitter just because you like going on Twitter, uh, I don't know, maybe that's not the best idea. Uh, actually, one of my favorite new apps is the Nextdoor app because it mm. is uh, yeah, localized to your community. Yep. You go on there and your neighbors are complaining about a pothole in front <laughs> yes, of they are. you know the local fast food place or they're talking about so-and-so on the school board who did a really horrible thing yeah. or, hey, watch out, guys, there was this, uh, this peeping Tom down the street. I think stuff like that is really important to keeping people connected with one another on a more local level. Yeah, and yeah, next door can still get toxic, but is it any more toxic than like your neighborhood barbecue and you yell at <laughs> right. you know, your neighbor because you didn't like that they had their dog unleashed. I, I think stuff like that's great. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, we have been abused on next door, my family, because our dogs, <laughs> our dogs are getting out. It seemed like every other day and people were just sick of it. They should have been sick of it, but uh, you're right. It's a great way to stay in touch with your, your community. And that's a, a good way to use technology. Um, I'll ask this question of everyone I interview until the midterms are over. What's going to happen with the midterms? We, I, I don't want to put too much faith in, politicians because they've let us down over and over and over again. But we're at a moment in time where issues like the one that we just talked about and so many other cultural issues, uh, they're in the forefront right now. And maybe we haven't lived through a time where so many issues are right up in our face. Um, what, what happens in the midterm? And are we going to be better off on the other side of it? 
Well, I definitely think Republicans are going to take both the House and the Senate, at least in part to, in the House to redistricting efforts. But I'm just not optimistic that they're really going to take advantage of it because mm. the Republican Party has this terrible history of being really good at being the opposition party. But when they actually take power, yeah. don't really yeah. have a whole lot of ideas. I mean, there's no reason, for example, why when Trump was in office and had both the House and the Senate that we should have only passed tax cuts. I mean, that's pathetic. So it's going to take, you know, electing the right people and also the Republican Party just having enough of a spine to actually enact some of these great ideas that governors have been enacting across the country. And I don't really know how that happens. I mean, I don't know how you convince them because it's been such a, a long time since we've right. had anything resembling uh, a Republican Party that's willing to use power when it's handed to them. So I actually really applauded Rick Scott. I, I don't know that I agree with everything in his plan, but at least he had a plan, right? Sure, and Mitch sure. McConnell was like, oh, we're not going to release anything. We are just going to win the midterms, and that's that. And Rick Scott said, no, the Republican Party has to tell people what right. we stand right. for. And, I mean, I, I just really think that was great that he took that upon himself. And I wish that more Republicans would do that. I wish they would get together and do that collectively as opposed to just yeah. wanting to win with with no reason behind it. I mean, yeah. why would you win if you're not going to use sure. that power then to enact change? It just doesn't make any sense to me. Yeah. Yeah. It's going to be an interesting um, year, I guess, as we come through that. But you're absolutely right. Uh, the Republicans are a good opposition party. They're terrible at leading. And I, I don't know what drives that necessarily, but that's what I think gives me hope for local elections and local politics and parents mad about their school board's decisions. And these are the things that, that make me hopeful. But, uh, man, a lot going on. I appreciate it. Amber, where can people follow you? We know you're on social media. So where, where can those people who shouldn't be on social media follow you? Yeah, if you're being bad, you can go on Twitter and find me <laughs> at Amber underscore AP. And you can read my articles at spectatorworld.com. I have a promo code Amber if you want to subscribe. I'd really appreciate it. Awesome. Well, Amber, thank you so much. Really, really appreciate your perspectives, and hopefully we can do this again. Thanks so much. We were not made to live in isolation. Sadly, many of our veterans feel they need to fight their battles alone. This self-isolation has led to the staggering statistic of more than 20 veterans taking their lives every day. A lot of guys end up drinking. A lot of guys end up losing hope. Someone will go to the VA, and they'll try to get you know prescription medications to help with PTSD, you know, they'll get pills for anxiety, they'll get pills because they can't sleep, now they'll get pills for depression before they know it. they're taking 12 different medications. And when it's not working out, these guys lose hope, and that's why there's 23 guys a day committing suicide. The mission of Mighty Oaks is to eradicate the veteran suicide epidemic and help our warriors change their legacies. As a result, we've been able to help over 4,000 veterans and first responders by equipping them with the tools they need to live the lives they were created to live. Everything they said just kept hitting me in the heart over and over and over again. It's like all the things that I didn't know that I needed to hear. And uh, I opened my heart to God that week, dude, and like, <laughs> I've been a different person ever since. Our faith-based, peer-to-peer approach has one of the highest success rates of any program available today, offering hope and understanding to those who need it most. We provide our programs and resources, including travel, at no cost to our warriors. I remember talking to a licensed uh, social worker who actually handed me a pamphlet to Mighty Oaks. So I went, and I'm glad I did. By aligning their lives to biblical principles, 
These men and women are able to lead their families, their communities, and our nation. Our mission is to serve and restore our nation's warriors and families who have endured hardship through their service to America and to help them find new life purpose through hope in Christ. It's your generosity that can make a difference in the lives of the men and women who have fought for our country and our freedoms. Now that they're home, don't let them fight alone. Learn more at MightyOaksPrograms.org. Appreciate Amber's perspective on that. Again, it's wonderful to have guests on our show who can really give us, as we mentioned, the information and perspectives we need to navigate an ever-changing culture. So much going on all of the time. It's important that we have experts on who have thought about it, studied it, understood it, had conversations about it, talked about it, and can help break it down in a way that we can understand and then give us actionable steps. What can we do? Amber did that, and uh, very, very grateful for her contribution today for this interview. Hopefully, this is one that you'll share out. Very, very misunderstood issue. One that we have to understand if we're going to make the right decisions. Share this episode out with people that you know. Uh, Many folks are ill-informed, and uh, this will help them do that. Share this episode out. That means that you need to be subscribed. If you're not yet subscribed to the podcast, please do that now. Subscribe on whatever platform it is you prefer to listen from. Uh, That would be fantastic. That's helpful to us, but that's also helpful to you. Three days a week, three times a week, new episodes come online that are intended to help you, and we want to make sure that you have those. If you'd like to watch this episode, I would encourage you to do that. Go over to SalemNow.com, SalemNow.com. You'll find uh, our content, the archive of all of our content, over 100 episodes, and a lot of other great content there as well. And uh, we would appreciate that. Again, thank you for watching. Thank you for listening. We will talk to you next time. Star General Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.